0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining, and if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. First this morning, we're joined by Tumas Lakso, he is the senior vice president and an engineer at DPS Skis and Phantom Glide. He'll talk to us about the ins and the outs and maybe even the secrets of the ski technology industry. Then Thomas Quayle from the Clark Planetarium shares
1: 2024 astronomical highlights, including a total solar
0: eclipse. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and I'm Katie Mullally. Well there's no shortage of science and technology displayed every day at our area ski resorts. The technology that gives us our favorite skis is constantly being tested evolved and improved by hardworking engineers and technology experts who of course won't be found in the lab or office on the mornings of powder days. One such ski industry professional joins us now in the studio. Tumas Loxo is the senior vice president at DPS Skis and also Phantom Glide, which we'll hear more about. They're both based in Salt Lake City and he joins us now to take us through how a ski is made to perform and how it is made to be sustainable. Tumas, welcome to Cool Science Radio. It's great to have you. Thank you so much
2: for having having me here.
0: Great to have you back, in fact. We've talked to you over the years about your various endeavors, all involved in some wild engineering feats to create better and better outdoor products. So what's your background? Tell us a little bit about how you came to be at DPS Skis.
2: Well, it's a, I tell this story often, but it was first grade and I love skiing more than any other kid. And I said in front of the class in a report, when I grew up, I want to make skis. Oh. And so I, I think it's, a, and I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, how focused that was, but um, it's been a dream. I went to college, studied plastics engineering um, with an um, emphasis in composites so that I could make skis. Um, and I kind of deviated from that. I. I I dabbled um, a little bit too much in aerospace and some other industries, but uh, um, ended up finally um, realizing my dream. And here I am in Park City the last 20 years combining some of my composite background. And I was an, an engineer back then and, you know, carbon fiber parts um, in space and medical and recreation. But those are actually pretty easy. Making skis is hard, um, and I just work with a bunch of great engineers at DPS that do all the engineering, but at least I can speak the language.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say all that stuff is easy. Aerospace engineering, et cetera. But making skis is hard. Why is it harder than any of these other types of of places that you applied your composite science to?
2: I'm amazed at where science and nature intersect. It's very difficult to combine labs and this beautiful nature that we're looking out the window right now it's constantly changing it's dynamic people are different um, if you're going to design a, a tube that goes into space there's some fairly well-known environmental conditions that you're dealing with um, it's bending stiffness torsional stiffness and that's about it but we have harmonics we have durability and we've been innovating in shapes for many many years DPS is almost 20 years old Um, And we're very well known for our for really pushing the shaping technology The engineering of it is is something that is also just we do things the hard way It's I would say maybe that's easier to build a ski out of fiberglass and metal and some of those equations of how to build a, a beam that's gliding over snow and what it's doing is I would say a little easier, but we tend to do things the hard way here in Salt Lake City. We build all of our skis here. We build them out of materials that will last forever. Um, so there's there's a lot of different equations when it comes to engineering a ski.
1: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Tumas Loxo. He is the Senior Vice President at DPS Skis based in Salt Lake City. Well, Tumas, we've seen the the evolution of skis you know I've got the 10 foot long wooden skis sitting on my deck I've got my old K2 Tele skis but I think a lot of us just assume that the evolution has gone from wood to some sort of composite maybe plastic or fiberglass but there's a lot more to it how give us a quick rundown of the evolution of ski
2: materials boys um, I could speak for an hour on that <laughs> um, going back to you know old skis found in Finland in a wooden, you know, wooden skis in a bog, and have we done something different since then? Um, And a lot of shaping is actually borrowed um, from history and and reverse side cut and tapered, you know, tips and tail rocker, you know, we're not doing a lot of innovation purely in shaping any longer. We went through, I call it a geometry freak show. We explored a lot of different shapes that were amazing in one certain condition. Um, if you are only skiing in Alaska and not passing over a single track, there was a perfect shape. Um, almost like a surfboard. There's a surfboard shaped for a specific break, and it's terrible somewhere else. Um, and I think as we've matured and, and uh, people's attention spans get changed a little bit, you need a ski that's going to handle a lot other, you know, um, more variable conditions. So shaping has evolved, but with that, things have gotten wider. Um, some of the forces in a wider ski are completely different than a narrow ski of the 70s. So there's materials that were completely suitable for narrow skis and I don't, I'm not quite sure whether it was materials that limited the design or the creativity limited the mm-hmm. designs, but once we had some higher modulus fibers um, and as technology trickled from the aerospace into recreation, whether it was golf club shafts or whether it was bike equipment or windsurfing, um, we were then able to apply these aerospace materials and wow, you can make a wider ski. Um, and, and wow, that ski actually behaves better in um, variable and crappy snow and deep snow. So I think the evolution of, of higher tech materials allowed those designs to happen. And then along the way, we've been just getting better and better at making those materials behave more comfortably in a recreational environment. I think er, our early carbon fiber skis were beautiful in powder, but they may were, maybe were a little nervous on hard pack. And that's where we've done amazing leaps in the last 10 years of really taking those the excitement of a ski, if you build a ski that's gonna last forever, um, there's some really high end materials, really expensive materials. And if, if the fatigue life is important, if someone's buying a DPS ski, you need it to last a lifetime. In fact, we have just launched a lifetime warranty now, and um, a, a guarantee, and, and that's uh, that's pretty rare to stand behind you know the quality and, and craftsmanship and technology of skis made here in Salt Lake City. But if we're gonna do that, we also have to have top sheets and bases and edges. Everything of that ski has to have a timeless appeal and a timeless performance.
1: So as you're designing these new skis, you're definitely obviously creating different shapes for different conditions. And I think in the past, most ski conditions were either powder or pack powder, but now with climate change, with technologies and grooming and snowmaking, what we're skiing over seems to be a lot more dynamic than it used to be and variable than it used to be. So it could be you know, 10 degrees in the morning and 40 degrees in the afternoon. Are you designing your skis and the materials on the bases to actually reflect that changing the changing conditions that we're skiing across?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I think part of that answer lies in, you know, expanding your boundaries or, you know, there was a little bit more focus on on piste or off. And now mindsets are, well, I don't want to be limited by where I can go, when I can go, how I go. So that's kind of the all-mountain evolution, you know, and all-mountain ski used to mean I might ski groomers or moguls. All mountain today means, you know what, today I might go and actually um, tour out the back. I might go and and ski groomers. I might go and wiggle through the trees. Um, so the, the um, understanding how skis perform in those variable um, kind of environments is what we've been focused on um, maybe the last 20 years. Mm.
0: So full disclosure, I have some pink DPS skis that I love absolutely it. love. Weird chatting about this a bit in the green room, and I've probably had them for 10 years. And I'm not a 150 day a year skier, but I also, you know, people say, isn't it time for you to get some new skis? And I say, absolutely not. I love these skis. I love these skis. So so I'm wondering if I bought the 10 years ago version of DPS skis, how different are they than what you're making now and you know when when did DPS start putting carbon fiber into skis?
2: Um, thank you for supporting the home team. That's <laughs> important to us. And uh, and sometimes I almost get embarrassed in the lift line, looking around and seeing how old some of those skis are out there. And I'm like, oh, we've come so far. And and uh, and but the shaping, I think we really revolutionized in shaping early on. What you're skiing um, has had some tweaks in the overall shape. The biggest innovations we've had are in the hard snow technology and innovating in sustainability. Um, so those are the three pillars that we have to judge ourselves on. Is it is it higher performance, how's the shaping, and, and about the overall lifetime value of that ski. I love, you know, 10 years old, I like to say that our skis have the lowest cost per ski to operate per day. You have to invest in a ski Um, And maybe you're fine with buying new skis every year, every two years, because it's going to break down in normal materials, fiberglass and metal. There's a fatigue life. You're asking that core to do a lot more of that contribution to the energy of that ski. A lot of those cores are wood cores and that it's a cellulose that breaks down. Um, We need our core to do completely different things because we have so much energy in our facings. If you think of an I-beam, each side of that I-beam is carbon fiber and the flange in the middle is, is a sheer layer it's 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 wood um but we have to do so much with damping some of those things with a really energetic facing that we don't have a a, this ski's not going to break down because the core is no longer you know you have no longer you know adequate camber and energy and you might the engine might be fine but you might be driving around with flat tires or you know like it's like that's the the what we feel a lot of people have become complacent, I think, in, in skis, and they're fine with, and, and, and I can't judge, some people might like a really um, kind of Cadillac-y, smooth, um, and non-energetic ski, and there's plenty of good skis out there that do that. We focus on great skis, trying to make excellent skis that have energy and, and reaction, and that'll last a lifetime. So, long way of saying, um, keep those pink skis, um, but
0: That's the right answer. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but where we've really made huge advancements is in the hard pack. The carbon fiber technology that we do in this core construction, the best embodiment, the best proof of that is in hard snow. Today, yesterday, when it's snowing, I feel like there's like global domination is near for DPS. There's so many DPS skis out on a powder day. <laughs> um, but you're missing it because when it's hard, that's when we really shine. That's when that technology shines and the shaping sh- shines when it's, um when there's uh new snow
0: yeah well it's funny that you say that because of course i love the dps skis in the powder but i feel like they're great on a on a groomer day you know uh i'm never great when it's sheer ice you know at the in the late afternoon (laughs) on one of those groomer days but man they can hold an edge on a, a nice groomer day I, I love it and I and I look down at them and you know the way that they're shaped and kind of the bend in the front they come up I go these look like a powder ski but they feel so good underfoot
2: that is part of the secret sauce yeah um, so that's where um, we can't just build powder doesn't last all day long you're going to be crossing tracks you might have to go on a groomer or you're skiing in the afternoon and and you don't want to switch skis so Um, Some of our skis are, we used to call it resort powder because in the resort that powder is going to go away and so it has to have that surface area and that float and that kind of um, I guess surfy feeling but then on a hard pack you have a little fighter ship.
1: So your background is aerospace engineering, how did you find that that translated to creating skis? I mean you said skis are harder than say a capsule being shot into space but how did that translate into working with skis and designing skis?
2: Boy, it's all manufacturing and that's um, it is having, you know, overall having a solid process and quality control and engineers and manufacturing engineers and and there's there's a business element, you know, and, you know, sometimes people think of, you know, skis as oh, that's kind of a fun garage shop, you know, oh, I hope you have fun, you know, what do you do in the summertime and it's (laughs) like we're a business and Um, Just like an aerospace business, you have to deliver on, you know, expectations uh, for the customers, for your dealers, for your distributors and ship skis all around the world. So we have to have, um, you know, just because we're selling to someone that has ski boots on versus a, um, you know, a a suit, there's still high expectations um, and a value that you have to create for your customer.
1: So you guys, your manufacturing plant is in Salt Lake which is pretty amazing considering I would probably guess that at least 90% of skis and ski equipment is made overseas and probably China. What challenges do you face, other than just economic, with manufacturing the skis here locally?
2: Boy, every day. Um, (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's very exciting to be in charge of your own destiny by having your own factory. That's all we do. That also means that every step of that ski We've vertically integrated. We're responsible for every element of building that ski. If we're building 100,000, 500,000 skis, um, then that's, you need the same equipment if you're building just for yourself. So most of those factories build for a lot of different companies and great skis come out of them, but um, you know, they cannot do what we do or do not want to because it's so expensive. Um, And then you throw in that overhead of having all, every one of those machines and the, the processing and the core rooms and everything. We have the same amount of steps to build a ski as a Million Ski Factory, but we're just building our own.
0: How many pairs of skis do you produce? I, I can't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, it's it's a, um, yeah, uh, un, unimportant.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, we have established so far that there are these four materials in a ski, and <clears throat> I'm wondering what else is in a ski. I think most of us ski around, and we don't know what's in a ski. So we've yeah. got metal, we've got fiberglass, la- wood, possibly, carbon fiber. What am I missing?
2: It's it's really fun to give a tour at our factory. Um, we do every once in a while, and and people have no idea how many steps are involved in the ski making process and how many different materials. We We, we do things differently with carbon fiber, but that's... Um, Peter Turner one of our founders he often says it's 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 a stew it's a, it, it, there's so many ingredients it's just not one ingredient that makes it you, if you're doing if you're making a ski with carbon then you have to have some of these other materials if you have those there's I, I could spend too much time talking about the ingredients of that and I'm not going to divulge our secret sauce but um, the you know the pri- it's primary carbon fiber wood rubbers urethanes, epoxies Um, But what we've been doing quite consciously is is reducing our dependency on petroleum. Mm -hmm. And so now there's some flax fiber, now there's a bio-based resin, now there's some castor oil in the top sheets, there's our packaging is biodegradable. So um, we we do, we focus, when you talk about technology, you focus so much on materials, but a lot of innovation is happening in life cycle and analysis and, and it's being driven a lot by uh, European regulations and I head there tomorrow and there's a lot of innovation happening on the overall impact that we as manufacturers um, are responsible for
0: mm-hmm to us, I'm suddenly disappointed that um <laughs> that we're going to talk both about DPS skis and about Phantom Glide because we should have just booked you, you know, for one conversation about skis, another I'll talk one faster. about... i I but have a lot this, to say. But I, I have to say that I'm really excited about this as a Nordic skier primarily. You know, here we have a buyback program in Park City to try to get the fluorinated waxes out of people's um, wax bench essentially because the, the fluoro pollutes the snow, which then in turn pollutes the water. so And, and then we, now we have a lot of spray-on waxes that don't have fluoro in them, but they're still chemicals. Tell us all about what Phantom Glide is.
2: It's, it seems too good to be true. And that was um, six years ago when, when we had this idea of, like, why we, we don't wax enough. Wax is bad for the environment. And what can we do about it? and we're not afraid to take chances, and, and I think we're a small enough company to be quite bold, and we kind of ask why, like a little kid, why? But, but why? And we keep digging into to solutions, and well, we're not quite sure why with wax. When there are technologies out there that can permanently change these, the overall friction of your polyethylene, your bases are all ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene, and a wax is topical it's a paraffin that sits on top it's like it's like a paint on wood and we developed a stain essentially that absorbs into the base and then we use a unique uv treatment that reacts with our um with our our chemistry and permanently bonds to the amorphous side of the polyethylene backbone um it's very hard to bond to polyethylene and that's why you know, wax rubs off. That's why uh, your eggs slide off your Teflon pan. Um, and so we thought things differently, um, and we launched it six years ago. For that reason, uh, they talked about with the floras long before fluoros were banned. We said, "This is forever chemicals are not right." Um, and skiers are lazy. How do we how do we solve this? Because you will glide better if you have wax, but you got to be waxing all the time. Um, so. So we um, worked our butts off, developed this, patented it, and it's a legit part of a business. Now, we're, we're beyond that it's too good to be true phase. Um, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of applications around the world now, and we're really proud of that, and we're improving the skier experience, and we're not con- contributing to a a temporary application. And waxes have gotten better. Um, but. We often say today's snow is tomorrow's water and this spring summer when we were talking about our own water systems here and there's still Forever chemicals found in that water um, We're we're not contributing to that. We're, We're a solution and today. We're actually today We're very excited to launch phantom Nordic and that's something we've been Engineering and working with for years, and if we're not a wax company, you know we're we're absolutely not a Nordic company, and let's get that straight. But, um, but being you know good engineers and developing this and not saying no, we have come up with a formula that is a little different molecular weight than the Alpine formula. The Alpine formula has to, and for snowboards, has to absorb deeper into the base. The Nordic formula, there's not a lot of. Um, constant grinds happening there's restructures and structures so important as you know in your skis you might have multiple skis with different structures but you're not going to get a grind every year so we took that magic kind of sauce focus it towards the surface in it with a higher molecular weight formula still use the same uv and wow it works very well and we've been very excited about the feedback we want to be clear it's not a replacement for race wax there are some Billy DeMong is he comes back to me and says wow Tim this is better than my race wax right now in these conditions we're still feeling what what is it that's not our intent but if it's on par with some race waxes and you don't have to do a thing I think we have a a product but our intent is really to you just don't wax enough a lot of people don't have their right equipment and even sprays you know you talked about changing temperatures minus 40 to plus 40 and like can you wax for that right period the right grain type the right if you can awesome if you can't we have a solution for you and during race day put a topper on there if if it's a very specific condition that you're looking for and we've had um, national team uh, racers train all summer long never waxing come race day They'll, they'll put a topper but uh, this is good enough for my training and in fact it could be just as good. We're saving people money. We're saving people money for like how much they're waxing and it's just shutting off after a few days. So I can talk forever on that. We're launching Nordic today. It's, you know, with a non-gravity fed sport like, you know, Alpine you have gravity and snowboarding and touring and but right here we really had to focus on the zero to 10 mile an hour range.
1: Well, it sounds like your company is involved in a lot of environmental initiatives. You know, whether it's using non-petroleum-based products, this whole waxing, this new this new element of glide, if you will. What other um, initiatives are you involved with to really make ski manufacturing and skiing a bit more environmentally friendly?
2: There's um, composites are often the last crop, um, and when you when you. You know, thermoplastics, you can heat up and melt, metals, you can do that, um, and glass. Uh, but a composite is, is done. You cure it and it is finished. Uh, now, it composites, carbon fiber, these materials have been around for 30 years. There hasn't been a reason to find a solution um, or an economical way to, to really find the next um, life cycle of these materials. And in fact, fiberglass you know, it's, it's, let's call it $10 a pound. If you could recycle that fiberglass, it's gonna be about five cents a pound. It's not a great business decision to try to invent a technology to to recycle fiberglass. Carbon fiber, however, there's windmills that are becoming out of service now that have a lot of carbon. There's Rocket Body. There's other things that, that, um, that that's $50 a pound. So there's an economic incentive to go, what do we do with this and how do we create a different um how do we recycle that so i've been involved on some really great developments where there's finally advancements where we can take a carbon fiber product and harvest that carbon and put it into the next product which is a kind of a symbiotic relationship that as we build a ski we want to have a mother log to actually feed us and maybe we can um give it a second life and then we have a ski that has a lifetime warranty and a revive program so we have a secondhand marketplace that you could sell your dps skis on this marketplace get money back for it if you don't want that pink anymore and you want the next uh the, the next pink <laughs> then uh you can h- help get into the next dps product so we're trying to create a circular life cycle of carbon fiber and i think that's where um the next innovations are really going to come from yeah
0: well Tomas miss senior vice president at dps skis and phantom glide it's been great to have you i wish we could i mean i could just keep talking to you all day <laughs> we'll have you back to talk more about it and and what you're doing as i'm talking to people around town about this thing that's not wax but it's permanent on your skis other than phantom glide what is phantom glide what what is the substrate what's the material right, i know it's probably Let's talk.
2: I can't go without talking about polymers and monomers and paraffins. And so you have a you have a polymer, which is a long chain molecule. That um, and you know there's plastics and and candles is our paraffin or waxes are our paraffin, and that's a little bit smaller chain. A monomer is a the 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 smallest building block of. Of that material so we developed a monomer a very small if some people think about carbon chains and C8 to C6 we're not even in that C1 element so we're small enough to fit into the spaces within the polyethylene structure so we take a slippery monomer and absorbs into the base and then we Flash it with UV it 's about a twenty minute um, cure cycle that that bonds that um, monomer to the backbone of a create a little free free radical that bonds and it becomes permanent um, and allows you to still get a tune and you still have that fresh phantom layer so that 's all I can great. talk about on those materials specifically but
0: great
2: yeah i 'll explain it just exactly that way <laughs> it's, it's it's a uh, we 're not the first ones to try to figure out how to simplify a wax there's yeah. been you know through history and, and there are and, you know, there's, you know, I don't know, um, dish soap or other things, yeah. you know, but, but they're all temporary. And right. this is the first one, so it's, it, it's a base treatment. So think of it as a base treatment that helps you um, effortlessly glide.
0: I love it. Timus Loxo, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck. You're heading over to Europe to do all kinds of wild things within the industry. So we'll check back with you in, an, in another little while.
2: So great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back to Cool
1: Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peake. 2024 promises to be quite the year, astronomically speaking. From a total solar eclipse visible in parts of the US, to comets, to meteor showers, and hopefully some northern lights, 2024 will be delivering quite the show in the night sky. Here to tell us about these celestial events and other astronomy happenings is Thomas Quayle, education program specialist with the Clark Planetarium and NASA solar system ambassador. Thomas, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
3: Thank you, it's great to be here.
1: All right, I have to start this all out by saying, first of all, NASA solar system ambassador is probably the coolest job title I've ever heard of. What do you do?
3: I'm kind of fond of it. I really enjoy it as well. So, NASA really uh, has a good program for trying to get science communication out to the public. And they need people who are are capable of helping to deliver that. They, they only have so many in their own workforce. So as a result of that, uh, they, uh, they have a program, uh, Solar System Ambassador Volunteer Program. Uh, it's a very lengthy application process. Uh, I, I thought I would be applying for a loan for a house. This is a lot of information in there. <laughs> um, but uh, in the end, uh, we receive multiple trainings monthly uh, from engineers and scientists that work on actual spacecraft and, and missions and other uh, science objectives, and then have the opportunity then to take that out and try to hold public events, go to libraries, uh, do anything we can to get that out.
1: Wow, that sounds like a, a great job all around. You get to learn and share what you learn. All right, well, let's jump into 2024. Let's start off with the big event, in my mind, is the April 8th total solar eclipse visible in good parts of the U.S.? What can you tell us about that, and are you excited for it?
3: I am very excited about it. So, yep, there's nothing else more bigger than that in 2024. (laughs) It's on the heels of the 2017 total eclipse, so it's almost where the 2017 one kind of went from the West Coast over to the East Coast of the United States. Uh, this one is going to be going the reverse of that direction. So it's actually going to be coming up through Mexico, then through the uh, the western area of the United States, and then exiting out towards the uh, the eastern coast in Canada. So it's, it's a phenomenal chance to get to see a solar eclipse if you have not seen one. I actually have not seen a total solar eclipse yet. Uh, I was at another event where I got to promote that, but not in the path of totality. So i'm I'm really excited there's uh, there's a lot of really good cities that you can go to uh, if you're if you're planning on going i would I would take a look at a, at a good eclipse map. We do have several of those uh, time and date uh, also has an exceptionally good uh, map that gives you the opportunity to put in your zip code find out where you're at what is it that you're going to be able to see even if you can't see the total solar eclipse it's a fantastic chance to use those solar eclipse classes that you may have held on to from uh, the uh, the uh, one just a few months ago and still see a partial solar eclipse.
0: Well, that is really exciting. And I'm looking at the path of that total solar eclipse right now. And I'll say, Thomas, that I feel like because of the total solar eclipse back in 2017, correct, and so many Mm -hmm. people having seen it, especially if they just drove two hours north, it has gotten people really excited. And then the one that could be viewed from southern utah it's really exciting and so it looks like if you went down to the to southern texas and then went in a northeast diagonal across the country coming out at maine you could see that and so i'm wondering where you're planning on being since you missed the the 2017 total solar eclipse i know people make this it's like a destination event
3: absolutely well it's i've have had it described to me if you have you can't describe it very well if you've seen one it's just it's just breathtaking and just awe inspiring and so uh while i have seen as many of us have pictures of this event uh it it's it's just really surreal connection with nature from what i hear people talk about so i I can definitely see a destination event being in play here uh for my own purpose uh i'm looking at probably heading towards uh texas uh man i'd love to actually go down to mexico that would be a really fantastic destination theme but uh we'll we'll see where my travels take me yeah
0: that sounds great so let's bring it back to home here in utah and um the history behind the planetarium and can you go into that because I think a lot of people aren't really familiar how how
3: how involved of a history is this the 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 annotated collective works of the
0: well probably the annotated annotated collective (laughs) works um yeah sure I'm sure you're good at that
3: uh so the the planetarium itself uh I, I don't quite recall the uh year that Hanson Planetarium first opened up, but uh, we had our beginnings uh, at a at a library that was donated by the Hanson family uh, and lived over on State Street for, for many, many years. I am not alone in the memory of when you went to school, that was one of the places that you went uh, in your childhood. And uh, we have watched our state grow its population uh, over the years. And we finally got to the point where we really couldn't help serve the community in the way that we wanted to in, in that location and so as hard as it was to leave such a uh, such a, a beautiful building uh, the location that we have now is is phenomenal uh, we've we serve thousands and thousands of kids on outreach visits uh, both in our outreach program and on site here uh, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of people that are just coming through the whole facility we have a, almost 100 different hands-on exhibits and activities uh, to learn about uh, space and space sciences and just the natural world. So it's it's a really good chance to, to get out and and see what's out there.
1: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Thomas Quayle. He's the education program specialist with Clark Planetarium and a NASA solar system amb- solar system system ambassador. So Thomas, let's talk comets. I remember, was it Comet Hayatuke all those years ago and you could just see this brilliant comet in the Eastern night sky and it was the most, it could be almost unnerving, but fascinating thing to see because it was so different. Do we have anything like that sort of magnitude coming up in this next year?
3: So that is up for debate. Do we have a a new comet coming through? We do, Uh, it's gonna be, uh, it was discovered um, just last year and uh, it's gonna be coming close by the earth. Uh, here in October, we're just not quite sure if uh, it's going to be something that's visible. One of the neat things about comets is, is that we don't always know what their composition is until they get closer to the sun. Uh, you have these relics from the formation of the solar system that are made of rocks uh, and minerals and different kinds of ices, and depending on, on on how much of that composition is certain ices uh, and, and, and what those are, those are what produce those, those gorgeous tails that we see with comets as as they approach the sun. So we'll we'll have a little bit better information, the climate starts to get closer, but uh, there's definitely one that's going to be coming our way uh, here in October.
1: We can always hope for that same sort of vista. That was amazing to see back then. All right, so next question. Mercury apparently is going to be findable or seeable through the night at the night sky in conjunction with the moon. And is that going to be worth pulling our telescopes or our binoculars out to see? Because even when we see it, it's still just a tiny, it looks just like a tiny star. But is it worth looking for?
3: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, Mercury is is it's really brilliant and bright. The That you have the ability to have it near an object that you can see uh, is is really useful because Mercury's orbit, because it is so close to the sun, it's we really only get the chance to see it just before uh, sunrise and and uh, maybe a little bit after and then just around sunset for a very very brief period of time. So any chance that we get to see Mercury is is, is a really great one.
0: Thomas, going back to the history of the Clark Planetarium, sorry, I just I feel like. Half the time I call it Handsome Planetarium and I don't know why. Can you just explain when, when that transition happened and why?
3: Sure. So one, I will tell you, you are absolutely not alone in still referring to it as Hanson Planetarium. We still actually receive mail by that name. It's it's kind of funny, uh, teachers and schools that we have visited for for decades uh, and have known of us and, and and worked with some of our staff for that long, Still referred to us as the Planetarium, and I think it's because the our facility and and the work that we do in promoting awareness of space and space science is has just become so iconic and 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 such a, a significant part of everyone's youth and, and experience just growing up in this state. We we have the, our our one major planetarium, and that's and that's all we have all had and so uh with those experiences and and such a a memorable name and facility it's hard to like move away from that (laughs) so the 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 years where we finally got to the point where we needed to move uh we just simply could not hold uh this the school groups uh, any longer that our state kept growing with we i think we just celebrated our roughly our 20th anniversary uh, here at the gateway and uh the the transition to the name from Hanson to Clark Planetarium uh, was simply, it was one where we needed to be able to raise enough money to help move our facility, and uh, we opened that up to uh, a lot of different opportunities. And the Clark uh, Family Foundation, they they uh, had donated a, a, a significant amount, uh, enough to where it was appropriate for us to go ahead and recognize them as the as uh, as our new benefactor for this great facility. That didn't mean that we lost Hanson, though. We still have our Hanson Dome Theater. So we have several theater spaces in here. And and we definitely cherish and honor that particular part of our heritage.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, thank you for that explanation. And I'm sure I'll still make the same mistake. But (laughs) Um, you know, and then speaking of the theater and speaking of technology there at the Planetarium, what can people expect to find even in terms of um, the telescope that you're able to look through and the theater and what kind of technology? We know that's always evolving.
3: Yeah, so I can tell you that we're really excited. So when we we were Utah's first IMAX theater, our first IMAX rated theater, and so uh, we have that gorgeous space. A few years ago, we upgraded to uh, digital projectors and so very very brilliant images. Fantastic, classic IMAX quality sound. Our Hansen Dome Theater itself has been uh, receiving multiple upgrades over the years. We are uh, we contract with Evans and Sutherland. Recently changed over. Uh, that's our, our our projection software system uh, that's in there, and we've upgraded our, our projectors in there as well. So I guess the experience. One of the things people remember at the Hanson Planetarium was our laser shows. They're like, "Oh, I remember seeing the laser shows there. Do you guys still have laser shows?" I'm like, "Absolutely, we do. And in fact, they're amazingly better because now we have these these projectors where you can be flying through space and having fantastic imagery. That you know, we're not we're not just pencil drawing uh, shapes with a fast moving uh, moving laser pointer anymore. We've got just brilliant uh in-house produced laser productions in fact we just opened up laser taylor swift so if there are any taylor swift fans out there we've been having phenomenal success and sold out shows with that bringing that in there so uh, as far as shows and and some of the technology we have those i had mentioned that we had nearly 100 hands-on exhibits uh, and those range from everything from uh physical actual tactiles we have we have the largest piece of the moon on public display, this side of the the Mississippi. So I always like to give a shout out. Our state has that. Uh, we have the second largest meteorite on public display here in our facility as well. So it's got some really cool things there. We have a, a little piece of a, of a meteorite from the moon that you can actually touch. Uh, we have that. So if you really want to come and see what it's like to touch a piece of the moon without being an astronaut, we've got that experience for you as well. Beyond that, we have a lot of fantastic digital interactives where you can learn about stellar evolution through uh, our our solar playground, try to make black holes, quasars, weird magnetars, all these cool things that you may hear about in, in science shows or from your kids coming home from school saying, hey, I want to know more about this. So a lot of really great experiences.
1: Well, speaking of kids, you are involved with, school, with the school groups at the Clark Planetarium. What's the best way to get kids involved in the ideas of space and what they have to offer? And do you find that there's something really specific that the kids really gravitate towards? No pun intended there.
3: <laughs> so I, I think one, absolutely. I One of the things that I love the most about kids coming into the planetarium is they get the chance to actually talk with people. We all have these devices and we can all do searches with our popular favorite search engines and, and you know, and search online. But, you know, we're, we're in the end, we're still people. We still want to actually have those those human interactive experiences. And I'm really proud that we have a really well-educated staff and a, and a specialized department to help make sure that we're able to meet those needs. Uh, We have tools and technology as well to be able to help answer a lot of those questions when kids come in, when you very first come in to the lobby of the planetarium, we have this large six-foot sphere that almost looks like a hologram uh, that's just sitting there. It's uh, uh, an exhibit called Science on a Sphere. It was developed by NOAA. It's one of the things I'm actually in charge of, so it's my baby. I I always want to promote it, but we have the ability to, to show data visualizations from tons of processes that are happening here on Earth. When you hear about earthquakes or hurricanes or other kinds of natural phenomena happening around the Earth, we receive information in real time from over 24 different satellite systems and sensor networks. So we can actually pull that up and talk at the moment about what's going on in natural phenomena here on the Earth, as well as bringing up objects in our solar system from from Jupiter to our, our lovely moons that we keep learning more and more about.
1: Well, speaking of Jupiter, I know that the, uh, is it the Juno mission that's going to be orbiting Io once again this year? Yes. Um, What are you, are you excited about that? And what have they found so far from the previous orbit?
3: So I'm exceptionally excited about that. Next month, if you want to learn a little bit more about moons in our solar system, we have a night vision series. It's going to be uh, specifically uh, themed on that in February. So, the significance of the Juno mission and coming in its close approach to Io uh, in particular, uh, it's the closest approach by any spacecraft in over 20 years. The Galileo spacecraft was the last one to get this close, and it flew within roughly about 930 miles of the surface of this moon. Uh, and this is a moon that actively has dozens to upwards of 100 active volcanoes at any given time. So to, to have a, a geologically, volcanically active moon in our solar system uh, and to be able to see the depth of detail of this moon uh, is just absolutely phenomenal. There's one more pass that it's gonna be making at the beginning of February as well. The one previous was just here on December 30th. So we're even gonna get a, a, fant- a good chance to compare these, these exquisite details of, of this great moon.
0: Wow, that is so close. Did you say 985 miles? Uh,
3: 930.
0: 930 miles away from Io. You know, I'm wondering, I was reading an article about this, um, you know, the the passing that'll take place. And and it made me wonder why we don't often hear about Io. Why is it something that may have been a surprise to a lot of people who, um, you know, who are just tuning in now?
3: So I think with as with as with any of the missions that NASA has, we, there's a lot of exploration of space that is going on right now, and so unless you have like specific favorite topics or missions that you're following, it's it's really easy to kind of like just let that go into the background and focus on some of the missions that are much more immediate and 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 occurring that are closer to home uh, and a little bit more accessible. With Io itself, uh, so Juno was sent more to actually study Jupiter, but we're getting some of course always you get extra science from the missions that NASA sends and so we've been able to get a lot more information about the processes that are taking place on Io and and, and learn a little bit more about its 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 geology.
1: Well then I know that the sun is approaching solar maximum is that right? It and is. So are we are we hoping for more um, northern lights and do you think we could actually see them in their brilliance down here in Utah?
3: Those are both great questions. Uh, so I will say that, one, with uh, so solar maximum, for those who don't know, the sun goes through a, a cycle uh, where it gets really, really active and it has a lot of sunspots and a lot of solar flares. And then it kind of quiets down to where there's like almost no sunspots anywhere. And so we call those times either solar minimum or solar maximum. And it follows that that cycle back and forth every few years. And so the the neat thing about going into solar maximum is so first of all with auroras you do have to have a really good strong solar flare heading towards the earth we don't want too big of a one that that, that that is not as enjoyable but they they do have to be relatively powerful enough in order to allow us to see the aurora as far south from the north pole as 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 Utah so basically the the earth has a magnetic field around it also an ionosphere and so as you have these the the energy from the sun from these uh, solar particles and the flares hit that magnetic field it kind of creates this bow and kind of stretches and squishes our magnetic field a little bit and as it does that it, it charges up the the gases in the upper atmosphere and so when you get those charged gases they emit light and that's where you get your your colors so in order for us to be able to see something down here in utah you have to have a relatively strong Solar flare because it has to actually squish that field down far enough to where it's it's visible from our end. The one thing that I can say is that I'm really excited that we have a total solar eclipse during solar maximum. Uh, i would really excited to get the chance to see the you can you'll be able to see the magnetic field lines the the a lot of the upper atmosphere of the sun when you don't have to have the uh, the the bright middle part. <laughs> in the way. So I'm I'm really excited to see what we'll be able to observe at that time.
1: Okay, so so just for the record, um, some friends of mine and I are flying to Dallas for the eclipse. We're going to fly in, land in the morning, take a bus into town, watch the eclipse, and then fly out. So it is very accessible for those who are still thinking about going, trying to find a way to go. Um, so I was also reading that some of the uh, meteor showers are not going to be as intense this year. Is that across the board for all of them?
3: Um, it's not necessarily across the board for all of them. Meteor showers are always going to have some that are a little bit better viewable than than others. So basically a meteor shower for those, we basically, as you have comets that orbit the sun, they leave that, those, those tails and the other material that's broken up. So when we have a meteor shower, we're actually flying through the tail of a comet of, of years past. So it's kind of a really neat uh, thing uh, so, if you take into consideration that the Earth has its own orbital path around the Sun and its own uh, inclination of the comet as it went through and was depositing material, and its in its own orbit, there are times where we intersect a lot more uh, with that material in in all of the the cycles of our of our orbital paths and all that, and other times where uh, we're kind of just more of a glancing blow.
1: Aside from the total solar eclipse, Thomas, do you have an event that you're really looking forward to this year? an astronomical event?
3: So maybe not necessarily as a, as a, as a one-off event. I do know that uh, there is going to be a, a time, I believe, in April, uh, it might be May, that uh, you're going to have Jupiter and uh, the planet Uranus within roughly about a half a degree uh, of each other in terms of, of uh, observable distance. And so if you ever want to know how to do that, basically, if at arm's length, one one finger is one degree. So they'll be like really, really close to each other. And uh, Uranus, because of its distance, is not usually very easily seen. So being able to have uh, the opportunity to possibly, with a good pair of binoculars, capture the the, the view of of those two gas giants in the same field of view would be absolutely phenomenal much less to be able to photograph one uh if you've got a a camera that you can you know bring up to an eyepiece of a telescope so i i i really look for for those fun little gems that just make things stand out in nature
1: well do you have any tips for our viewers to go down how to best see these events
3: so one i can tell you that if you If you sign up for our newsletter with Clark Planetarium, we do send out a monthly uh, list of sky events that you can see. You're always welcome to to simply call in or or email us, and we're happy to answer those as well. I am excited to say that we just barely started uh, this year uh, our volunteer program so if you're looking at wanting to kind of get in behind the scenes and learn a little bit more about not only the science of exhibits but also about ways that we go out and and learn about these things that we're observing the sky it's it's a great opportunity to to come in and and get involved that way as well
1: our guest has been thomas Quayle. he is the education program specialist with clark planetarium and i get to say this one more time and the nasa solar system ambassador Thomas, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us what we can expect to see or hope to see in the night sky coming in 2024.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And thanks for tuning into Cool Science Radio here on KBCW Park City.